Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesson. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, I'm well. I'm, I'm still in a, a motel, the Funky Route 66 motel. I said last time it was the El Dorado. Forgive me. It's the El Rancho on Nevada Way, right downtown Boulder City. Uh, I'm hoping that the move-in will happen fully on Tuesday. It has been a little bit of herding cats to get everything done, but the floors look terrific. I'm very happy with my paint choices. Some things are working well, and uh, I'm, I'm digging the wildlife up there. Um, I'm uh, acquainted now with a jackrabbit who is just full-blown gangster. It's just wonderful to watch. And this morning, I saw a, a whole herd of fully horned mountain sheep walking down the main street. Not a care in the world. No, Excellent. no interest in uh, moving or doing anything differently because of cars. Uh, there were enough of them. I mean, safety in numbers and big horns. I think we need to add that with that expression. Yes, there is safety in numbers, and it helps to have whacking big horns on your head. Absolutely. Yeah, we are in the process of moving here as well. Um, so my office is currently a mess. I have a big pile of books on my floor that I'm looking to get rid of, which is always difficult for me for some reason there's a lot of books that people gave to me at readings or that I picked up that were kind of you know friends a lot of old bizarro stuff and I just don't want to lug it around anymore seems like relics from a bygone era and I'm ready to clear off some shelf space and get some new stuff in but it's cool I found a lot of things that I hadn't seen in a while I found Reverend America which I haven't, uh, I hadn't picked up in a couple years um, since we started the show. Actually, I started with a passage from Reverend America in I think episode two or three or something. Yeah, like that. that was a great reading. I hadn't heard uh, someone else read aloud from it from for quite some time. That was a beautiful reading. Uh, yep. Wow. Yep. So I found it and my private midnight. And I also, uh, when I say found, these are all books that are on the shelf, but you know how it is when you have a shelf of books, you kind of, they fade into the background. So it is interesting to pick them back up and hold them in your hands. And it's a fun experience, but a lot of this stuff, uh, things that I could potentially check out from the library, I'm getting rid of. And like I said, just a bunch of this junk from authors that frankly aren't very good um, that I've been carrying around for some strange sentimental value even though I hold no sentiment towards these people. So it's, it'll be good to get rid of that stuff. I think you do need to do that, whether, you know, you actually get rid of them or you pass them on or, I mean, in another register with very much the same principle of, of deactivating and reactivating for the new, uh, I, I'm going to paint over um, some of the canvases that I have uh, in my, uh, you know, of my own work um, it worked fine in my, my other place, and I am going to keep certain things. Uh, you know, all of the masks, for instance, I really just don't feel right getting rid of any of those. Uh, but with my own work, uh, 
I think sometimes you do need to paint over and, and start something new, get something, get something mm-hmm. new happening. I think that we're a little bit too afraid to refresh on that front. And it's terribly important to do that uh, at your stage in life because I know a lot of people, uh, either my age or older, who, who are just already so barnacled by staff yeah. They can't even evaluate what, what it is they're hanging on to. And I, I think that in addition to the physical clutter, the expense and or labor of, of moving stuff and, and the spatial considerations, which are becoming more and more an issue, and certainly for a young growing family, uh, a pretty major concern, there's the issue of the psychological connection. Why are we hanging on to this stuff? And I think it is more than this, just this declutter movement. Um, I don't know if you've seen any of those books or shows. They, they've got some good ideas, but it's pretty superficial. What you and I are talking about is, is much more uh, intellectual, mental, psychological, magical house cleaning, you know? Right. What do I actually want on my shelves? So I'll keep The Changing Light at Sandover by James Merrill. But I can get rid of, oh, just at a glance, Lit by Mary Carr, The Kings of Cool by Don Winslow, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, uh, Just Kids by Patti Smith. I mean, I can check those out from a library if need be. Or if the urge really strikes me, I can just buy them again. But yeah, there's no reason to lug them. So, yep, I'm looking at a big stack here of stuff that I'm getting rid of. But today, what uh, what mental, imaginative challenge do you have for me? So I have my words, and before we get to the imaginative challenge, I do want to announce what the two words were last time. <clears throat> they were tenacious and warbler. Those were the two words that I had to sneak in there. So there's yeah, a bird and, clock and that I mentioned, and then tenacious. I forget where I put tenacious in there, but the warbler there. thing was really nice. Yeah, that that was. Uh, I had a big grin on my face when I heard that, and I thought, uh, "Oh wow, you know, you're mm-hmm. you're sneaky, you know." And this is yeah. really the the idea of, of staying limber of mind. You know, we talk about being limber, mobile, flexible, in good balance a reasonable degree of body strength physically. We've got to concentrate on that mentally. We really, really do. Uh, Because as I say to my students, we've all got to get younger. And you don't want to be saying that to 19 and 20 year olds. You know, it's really, really a problem. So little techniques like this, being a kind of secret agent and having a special assignment for an hour segment of, of, you know, and, and keeping the mind running on a few different tracks, you know. I mean, that's, we're multi-channel, uh, you know, multi-octopus creatures. You know, we, got, we should have a lot going on. And if we have a little bit more focus and purpose in that, then we'll feel much better in ourselves. So we have a, a, an imaginative challenge that builds on last week I asked David to take us on uh, an imaginary travelogue, a very focused and tactical travelogue of but one alcove of an antique or ephemera 
collection store type of situation, swap meet, what have you. Uh, because there's a lot of little individual artifacts, lots of little nouns. And the purpose of this fits into my memory training of trying to break people's of the habit of searching for nouns, you know. The most lost uh, item to memory is, is a proper name, as, as, as most people might know. And if we... And this is a, a somewhat counterintuitive idea. But my claim is that if we allow more complexity in what we are trying to remember, th it will be easier to remember. Mm -hmm. And the process of remembering will disappear entirely. It will be a fluidity and flexibility and immediacy of mind, immediacy of mind, not memory as in some recall or hunting through a dusty addict or decluttering or all of we want to break down those metaphorical processes with a new process approach of really enjoying the dynamic nature of of everything because the greatest minds that have ever lived have said really nouns are illusions there really are only verbs and relationships. So this kind of builds on it. Uh, I'm going to give you 30 million bucks, David, which is, uh, in one scale of things, uh, quite a ton of money. But in the scale mm -hmm. you're going to be working on, uh, not, not outrageous at all. Not outrageous at all. Um, kind of a mid-range. Uh, if... Uh, you know, for, 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 you know, kind of calibration purposes. But you've got $30 million to develop. And let's just say, because you live in Oklahoma, let's just put this into an Oklahoma City context because you're aware of that environment geographically, uh, culturally, economically, uh, socioeconomically, uh, it, it, it's a good starting point. Start from where you are. But you've got $30 million to develop a theme park that you would be truly proud of in your soul. Okay? This is not... It, it does need to survive in the world commercially. Yes, it does. Uh, it certainly needs to meet all the requirements of inclusivity and uh, appeal to people. We're certainly not um, disallowing people, but it needs to be something that you will really be proud of. Uh, and, and we're going to listen closely to what makes, uh, well, what your you know, particular criteria might be for that. But again, we're looking at the concept of breaking down nouns and looking more at process, looking more at engagement. Because a theme park is a really wonderful uh, possibility of engagement for individuals, for families, for different age groups, for people of different you know, economic status. It isn't just one thing. It's not one thing they buy, one ride they go on, or one exhibit. It, it's an overall experience. So for this session, you have become a theme park impresario. And you have $30 million to present something that will engage people of some kind. It doesn't have to engage everyone. Uh, 
Um, it could be targeted demographically, uh, but it has to be something that meets your standard of personal pride. That if you were to die when it was complete, you would feel like you had something of legacy value. Okay? I've already got it. I just got to work out the details. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm excited. Right. I'm excited. Great. I'm excited. Um, what would you like to talk about today? Okay. Well, I, um, I, I think that with our idea of, of dissonance of the week, I, I would like to look at the, the, you know, an oscillation between the small scale, the immediate day-to-day sort of issues, and the big picture, background, large canvas stuff. And I, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start very, very immediately, like in my own hand right now. Uh, so I'm in this motel room, and I, I, I am. I'm, I've been flicking through the channels of, of TV. And last episode, we talked about my, my horror and disbelief at the bizarre advertising, which has gone on, by the way. I, I had no idea that there were talcum powder victims talcum powder victims a massive class action lawsuit against Johnson and Johnson for the innocent, the ultimate innocent product of talcum powder causing mm-hmm. cancer but but that's that's not my story I'm, that's just by the by a little bit of a riff to get going I have in my hand a device that I think actually is totemic iconic emblematic and maybe the devil's plaything. I, I think it really needs serious, serious review. It's not aesthetically interesting. Uh, it's not particularly dated, but it, it has a certain cheapness to it. And I'm talking about my television remote control. Remote control. What an interesting idea that is. That should be... Uh, part of a definition of magic action at a distance i think equals or is close you know approximates the notion of remote control but i have to tell you i have been doing a little dance and i'm also very tired of everybody dancing on tv in ads i'm really sick of that But I haven't been able to make my remote control work such that I've felt sometimes that I might as well be trying to communicate with the microwave oven, which is right beside it. It's a complete farce. There is no remote control. It's... It's a complete. It's almost like a kind of psychological torture. It sometimes works, and sometimes doesn't. And I think it's a beautiful metaphor for so much of the modern age, the recent modern age that you and I are, are concerned about prosecuting. And I think it really says so much about our individual frustrations and some of the promises that you and I have talked about from customizing your phone plan and building your own burger and, you know, everything's you know only pay for what you need you know except you're going to pull down your pants and and pay through uh you know that special opening so (laughs) that's my first thought is i i've got the remote control and then i was thinking about 
you know, the the backstop of, and this is what we're all confused by. I think I think this is where the dissonance comes in. I've been faced with these this issue of, of plumbers and an electrician who comes and disappears and just trying to get into my house. And meanwhile, Ukraine has been invaded. Meanwhile, many schools still aren't open. Meanwhile, these giant cultural things play out. And I've been listening to people. Uh, to I went to the, the local hamburger place, which is kind of a hot spot and certainly a, a real family hot spot. And I heard a lot of people talking about this. Uh, if a politician were in there, I hope they're listening because the place was packed and everybody was talking about exactly what in, in large form I've just run through. The difference between our day-to-day real-life problems with our loved ones, our homes, our own health and finances, and these giant uh, global-scale events that are often misrepresented and misreported to us and create psychic dissonance that is paralyzing our culture. So that's kind of my opening. Remote control, battling with plumbers versus the invasion of the Ukraine, still confusion about COVID, concerns about the climate, the economy. Everyone's looking at the gas prices, you know, that deal. Okay, so over to you. Mm -hmm. The remote control aspect is interesting because of its function. Uh, as you said, totemic in a sense, its function of giving the illusion of control while still being relegated to whatever channels are on the television and really being at the mercy of whatever tiny crystal sensors are involved in the remote control itself. I think that what we are witnessing right now is information and psychological warfare on a level that is really hard to fathom. If you go to Twitter, you'll see pictures of captured soldiers, and depending on what account you're looking at, they're either Ukrainian or Russian soldiers. I'm not sure if you heard about this ghost of Kiev uh, myth that was being propagated online, but there was a big argument about a, a Ukrainian fighter jet pilot who had allegedly shot down six Russians in a single aerial battle. Turned out to not really be true, and people online who were championing championing the Ukraine, as all good Americans are supposed to be doing right now, were quite upset to find out that the ghost of Kiev was not real, and actually said, why don't we stop fact-checking for just a second and let us believe in these things? Which is really funny, coming from the same group of people who would broach no conversation whatsoever. But when that gets reciprocated, when the tides have turned, now all of a sudden, oh, let people have fun, right? Let people have fun. The dissonance of uh, Americans being forced to support uh, all Ukrainian freedom fighters, including including the Azov Battalion, which is made up mostly of neo-Nazis, is really really just dissonance at its peak. Now, what am I saying in terms of all this? Should we be pro-Russia? Not at all. 
but war is an ugly complicated nasty thing and americans looking for an easy side to choose to be able to cheerlead for is just not going to uh to work out i think i'll send it back over to you Yes, well, it's, I mean, I think that the, even the best-hearted Americans, uh, best-intentioned, you know, trying to engage with global politics, it, it, it's simply beyond most people's uh, educational uh, capabilities. I, I, I think we have to appreciate how complex things are, and that when even our specialists are multi-degreed professionals working in these fields have really no idea what they're talking about. Then uh, someone at home has has no idea, and therefore the, the the nonsense of television, you know, just proliferates. I I just am simply staggered at at the real nature of uh, of what is happening on television. And I loved your point in response to the remote control, that even if my remote control uh, and the interface with the television unit, the screen, uh, were working effectively, which it's not, uh, there still is very little, there's no control over what's actually on the television. You know, the complete nonsense that just, uh, you know, rivers through it uh, is simply staggering. Uh, I mean, I, I really can't, I can't imagine that there is any function in social terms, you know, in anthropological terms, other than to make people feel better because of uh, the, the, the horror of what they're seeing. And I, I think it, it, it really includes every category from bare-knuckle boxing to swamp buggy racing to uh, I love the uh, a new reality show about uh, love after lockup and <laughs> it, it really picks up on some of the 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 most just inspiring elements of the Jerry Springer show in terms of completely degraded hillbilly white people and some of the trashiest black people I could ever possibly imagine. I mean, it's beyond ghetto. It's just like, what? So you've got ghetto and and trailer, you know, uh, shack and tenement. It's just full bore. And that's just one sort of the many sort of things that are going on. But here's an interesting uh, little exercise. I, I wouldn't put it quite on the level of a tip or a tool, which we'll get to soon. But I wonder, and this is a, a function of my dysfunctional remote control, but I do think this is a point. Whenever something doesn't function that you expect to, particularly technology, uh, but relationships as well, I would take it as a sign, actually. You know, the indigenous sorcerers would, and I don't think that we should be above that. Uh, we should maybe listen to it. But if you check out a Law and Order episode, and I, I'm not sure if I did hear this correctly when the sound was up, as in not muted, but I, I did think I heard that the total franchise 
the Dick Wolf Law and Order franchise in all its many forms, but all the same form, <laughs> has produced 25,000 episodes. That, that's simply staggering. But if you watch one of those with the sound off, I think it's quite a remarkable experience. And I think what is an interesting, and why I mention it in our dissonance segment, is I think that the first thought would be, well, damn it, I want, why doesn't the mute button unmute? Why doesn't my remote control work? That was my thought. And then I began to think, I don't really need to hear the sound. It actually doesn't make me feel like I'm missing anything. And in that weird moment, I went from being very frustrated to completely flipping around my dissonance. I didn't need that. I didn't need that. And I think that is one way to start thinking of cures, maybe only very tactical, not big, strategic, philosophical, totally magical cures. But, but ways of coping with it. When don't we need information? When, when can we actually deal with the dissonance of images without sound? And vice, you know, and all of their many extensions. I'm using that as a metaphor. So what do you think about that as an idea? Those moments where there is a dissonance situation. There absolutely is a disjunction. And yet... Maybe it's not such a big deal. Maybe it's good. I, right. For starters, as to whether it's good or not, I'm very firmly on the side of it being good. But talking about your Law & Order show being on mute and it really not mattering, I talk to a friend of mine, Kelby, quite often about Japanese film. I do another podcast that's called Agitator, which is just about those movies. And occasionally we'll decide to review a film that hasn't yet been subtitled in English. And we'll watch it, and part of the fun is attempting to piece together not just what happens, but the mood and the tone of what's going on without any understanding of the Japanese language or any subtitles to help us along the way. And I think that part of... Uh, keeping yourself like, essentially muting things online in the sense of you can go to Twitter if you want and you can set your home country to France, Japan, probably not Russia, but some different country and you'll all of a sudden your news feed will simply be all the news in Japanese. It'll be completely unparsable. And I think that words are spells we've talked about this point many times on the show and i think that we've reached a point with the internet where the language that's being used on all sides of the aisle at all times is so charged much in the way that those extremely popular dick wolf shows are um all law and order special victims unit in particular has always struck me as an incredible show for how heinous its subject matter is, and yet the fact that it's on primetime television and people seem to willingly sit down and listen to descriptions of these, these awful crimes. I think that has to do with the power that words 
have, whether they're spoken or read, <clears throat> and creating an artificial, intentional barrier, right, to drown out the cacophony of English that we constantly have to hear allows for these this kind of thing to wash over us in a way that isn't it's not this death by a thousand cuts anymore it's more faded into the background while we're talking about remote controls and whether or not muting is helpful or not i couldn't help but think of gus who is obsessed with the remote control but mm -hmm. as a toy in and of itself he likes to chew on it he likes to throw it he's obsessed with the remote control because he's seen rios and i use it to turn the television on and off i'm not sure if he's made the connection of what the remote control actually does but he knows that it's a totemic object and he wants to play with it but he is only interested in the thing itself not its function as a remote control so there might be something there as well. I think that's very interesting. Uh, I uh, I don't know if I mentioned on on the show ever. Perhaps I did. I, I I'm still fascinated by it. But uh, when I was living on the other side of the mountain in suburban Henderson, <clears throat> there were a series of break-ins, houses and condos, but mainly freestanding houses. And it didn't appear as if anything had been stolen. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was very peculiar. And, and it happened about, I don't know, 12, 13 times. And finally there was uh, some revelation, some capture, some disclosure. And it turned out, um, and I, I would love to see what happens to these young men as they grow older. Uh, a, a couple of, I think three or four, uh, teenage boys who were breaking into houses and the only thing they were doing they were exchanging remotes television remotes so that people would would, would see a remote there and you know you're not really that familiar with it you, you might if it's a very distinctive looking thing but you might just habitually just pick it up and wonder why it's not working well it's not your remote and they were doing it as a prank. And I, I really love that idea. I think that that's, there's something kind of, you know, wonderfully perverse about it. But it's a good wake-up call to this taking sort of a, a totemic object completely for granted so that Gus sees the magic in it just as an, an objet, as a noun, uh, really not understanding the verb process. And yet, most of us just look at it as a pretty, you know, we, we do think of it as a dynamic process, and we get frustrated if the process doesn't work. But then, then the whole thing becomes kind of invisible, you know, and the whole idea of God actually changing channels manually on a set I mean, I don't even think that, you know, if that's possible. It's uh, difficult. It's very you know? difficult. My television does not have uh, channel up and down and volume up and down buttons. You have to hit a button. It's like tapping Morse code to get to where the volume is to turn the damn thing up if you lose your remote. I love that you mentioned the remote as objet. 
because I have been thinking extensively recently about the the need, the way that you and I talk at length about the necessity of moving back into ritual, particularly rituals from childhood to adulthood, but rituals in general as a way to structure time. I believe a key component of this that you just brought up is the return to objects as object as noun as things in themselves whether that's statues of saints or remote controls when everything in your life is viewed as a a tool for a process and that process is involved in the filtering and presentation of information which is what most technologies these days in the house do. It's it's a way of compartmentalizing and presenting to yourself information. But the return to understanding objects in and of themselves, treating them as though they are useless, collecting useless items, maybe not to the point of becoming a hoarder where you have, you know, four foot high stack of takeout boxes and squeezed out toothpaste tubes but you know focusing on the remote it's it's a like what what does it look what does it feel like what is it as an object in your hand right now you have a remote control that's useless which might make it a better remote That's a, a very, very interesting idea. And, you know, it, it does go back to, I mean, I think to, uh, if we look at, at some of the thinking of the Surrealists and Marcel Duchamp, some of the art playfulness, which I think to some people seemed kind of, well, I, not kind of, it seemed like a gimmick, you know, at the time. And, and it may seem still uh, a little bit, well, a joke, but I think it's a very meaningful joke about, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of diagrams that I don't understand, schematics that appear to, you know, you know to, to do nothing, because I think anything that is all about this constant explanation and uh, being easy to use, I mean, so little of technology is intuitive, and last uh episode we talked about the difference between explaining and explaining away well i think that what we have is a world full of explanations that need further explanation need for you know and they don't help and it becomes more and more ridiculous so having a pure object a pure uh pure function pure of purpose uh, is a beautiful idea. And, and strangely enough, I think it's a very old idea. You know, why do you like this? Because it's good to hold. If you, if you talk to indigenous Australians, where in one of the principal cultures where the idea of, of totem clans and totem animals come from, they don't say first that an animal is a totem animal because it's good to eat. They say it's good to think. It's good mm-hmm. to think. Yes. Right, right. You know, it's like that magic thing of having 
something in your pocket. Very early in my life, I don't know if this resonates with you, but uh, I mean, from the moment I was able to go out the door of, of where we lived alone, uh, not even yet to school, but certainly by the time I was going to anything like school, I needed to have something in my pocket, uh, something magical. And it, it kind of needed, it, I don't know, it might sort of be a week-long thing and then I'd need something new or I could recycle it, but I couldn't have the same thing. It's, uh, it's exactly like my little uh, Zuni bear fetish, which I carry around now. And I, why do I like it? I mean, I, I like looking at it. I love the feel of it in my hand, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and that's all the explanation there, there needs to be. You know what? Now that you mentioned the Zuni bear fetish, I think I bought one of those off of eBay and never received it. Thank you for reminding me. I'm gonna you, have to you double did, check you, on that. You did pick up on my mention of that. That's good to follow up on because if you didn't get it, you should. Yeah, we got yeah, we I, got very excited about that. I talked about my Zuni bear, which, by the way, what where it all come? It, I bought that right at the um, the uh, Lake Mead National Park Information Center. So it was part of the magical journey of getting me here in Boulder City, it, it's played a crucial role in, in supporting that movement. So, yeah, if you didn't get it, you need to get yours because they're, it, I did. it's important. I did get it. I know where it is now. Rios okay. co-opted it and put it on her fetish shelf full of crystals, and I remember now. It's there okay. by, the, by the Palo Santo. Yeah, I might carry that little bad boy around with me for a bit because this idea is one that I would like to explore more on the show because it's a difficult topic to parse. The first, you know, wrinkle in this that comes to mind is the idea of the Funko Pop, you know, these vinyl action figures with big bobbleheads and big black eyes. Have you seen yeah. these? Do you know what I'm talking about? I have. About? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So the Funko Pop is a fetish object but it's not what I'm talking about in terms of enjoying a useless artifact. It is functionally useless. It doesn't do anything. But what it does do is signal to its owner or whoever might visit the owner's house that they are a fan of a particular television program or video game. And I think its function as a kind of narcissistic like a t-shirt right like a band t-shirt a band t-shirt is pulling double duty it's acting as clothing but also as a as a billboard to signal that you are part of a certain kind of tribe i'm talking really useless stuff um i think maybe the word useless is not quite uh I think maybe that's that is the, the problem. problem. Yeah, have, maybe maybe useless might be the wrong word. I think we have a negation in there, and as Bergson says, you know, anything that has a negation is is problematic, or at least needs to be analyzed and pulled apart. Ah, uh, true. Okay. You know, I think yeah. with with any little uh, commercialized icons or branding, we know that there's there's first of all there's a level of commercialization there which is. Uh, huge and important you know you can't dismiss it 
and we, we can rail against it, but, but we all play a part of that in some sort of way. There's the other issue of group identity built into that, which it's the group aspect of that that is so, so important. But I think what, what is, is more important with the kinds of fetishes that, that, that we've just been talking about is, is not so much about uh, function and purpose, because I think they do have, have significant function and purpose. Self-reinforcement is what I would say. Uh, I mean, absolute magic protection, guidance. Yeah, correct. You know. But what I think drives them is individual meaning. Individual meaning. I have uh, a messed up uh, Evan Rude outboard motor baseball cap that looks like it's been run over by a few trucks. And you could say, okay, look, that is just part of a huge category of baseball caps that signify certain things. Because baseball caps and t-shirts, they're signifiers. They're, they're deeply communicative. Uh, well, I'm not sure that, it, that my Evinrude cap would be that easy to decode as, say, a sports team or uh, a power drink or any many many other categories of branding because I wouldn't want uh, a mercury outboard cap now why I, I have no idea I was obsessed with Evinrude outboard motors when I was a kid my father, we didn't own an, you know we didn't own one but I liked I liked the word Evinrude. I, um, I don't like the, the Johnson outboards. I don't like, uh, uh, well, Mercury or Yama. I mean, there are many other things that you people, or like a Sea Chief cap. I have a friend who's got a Sea Chief cap. Now, the cap in a design sense looks great, but it doesn't have that magical significance to me. So there's a big difference, I think, between the fetishes that signify group identity, tribal connection, and I'm in this scene, whether it be gaming or toys or, and, and that's what a lot of these collectibles do. I mean, think of the entire, mm-hmm. uh, the real bulk of the money made from Star Wars is all about this, you know? I mean, it's just absolutely astounding. And, you know, that, that serves a purpose, I suppose, but we need to really distinguish that between um, people who are involved in that level of collection and fetish uh, museumizing have a social purpose in mind of right. status, prestige, connection. I'm only, uh, I'm not interested at all in explaining my Zuni bear fetish to anyone. I, I don't feel the need to explain it to you. I just share it with you. Kind of as if, you know, I'd say, well, you know, here, hold it in your hand. Because you don't need to have an explanation. And there isn't one, <laughs> you know. Um, it, it, there isn't sort of a group identity protocol etiquette thing going on. And there's certainly not any uh, commercial value that is... Uh, you know, really part of it. I mean, if I mm-hmm. lost the Zuni bear fetish, which I'm not going to do, I mean, would that 
really be so devastating? Yeah, it yeah. would. <laughs> right. And it seems it seems like every object that has no functionality, as we said before, does not necessarily represent this kind of pure meaning that we're talking about, like the aforementioned squeezed out toothpaste tube. That's trash for most people, at least. But I think that the potentiality for these objects to become pure meaning is inversely proportional to their functionality. Well, look, on that note, I, I wonder if it would be okay to launch into our discussion of, of, of the tool for the week. Yeah, because I've right. been kind of, of of mooting the idea that we're moving into some mathematics-based tools, and we haven't really got into a deep dive of, of any one of them yet. And I think the topic that you've, you've raised is just a beautiful intro to uh, the the issue in question, which builds on um, my, my preview. And what I've we've been talking about with the value of mathematics-based magic is that it's a beautiful complement and contrast and shadow reflection of linguistic conceptual tools and ways of understanding. And I started off sort of encouraging us to think in just wonder about how some ideas got thought of. I mean, the idea of number itself is enormously mysterious. Number versus, say, well, the kind of geometry involved in anything other than an arch. An arch is just as mysterious as anything gets. And how you actually execute that, I don't know. And people go, let's not reinvent the wheel. I did a whole workshop on making a wheel, and I tell you, it was the most humbling thing. I think if we re-experienced all of these things that we take for granted and complain about being more expensive when we go to buy them, we'd realize just how absolutely mysterious the world that we live in is. Where did it come from? But just think about this. How do, the sum of an odd and even number is always odd. The product of an odd and even number is always even. I mean, who thought of that? I mean, that is just, that's just remarkable to me. You know, any two points in space, through those two points passes one line. I mean, I don't know what the definition of genius or magic could be if it wasn't predicated on, on that kind of thinking. It's just, I mean, it is just startling. So out of that sense of wonder about this mode of thinking, which is a global mode of thinking, I, I think there are some pathetic people in America who somehow want to make this uh, divided along racial lines. Well, they have a lot to learn mm -hmm. about the cultures of India, China, all of Africa. I mean, on and on and on. I don't know what they're talking about. Nothing could be more uh, global and universally human 
you know, not universal, but in human terms. But we focused or took a little bit of time to appreciate the invention of zero, which is an astonishing idea, an absolutely astonishing idea. Contrast zero with nothingness. I was going to ask that exact question. Is zero nothingness? No, it's not. It's not. That's the beauty of it. It, it. I mean, I can see why people think it is. But, I mean, and I, I, you know, I think it's worth tossing these concepts around. Just as I think it's worth considering, is there a difference between eternity and infinity? Mm. Mm-hmm. You know what the Egyptian sign for infinity is? I love it. The hieroglyphic sign. It's a man with his arms raised over his head. Hmm. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, but here is the, I mean, I, I think zero needs to be thought about just uh, uh, quite a bit because I think it's not the same as nothingness. It is, first of all, in, in pure arithmetic math, number theory terms, a placeholder concept. And the, the reason for it uh, is worth people's study. That gets into a little bit of the history of math that I... I I don't want to sort of dwell on because we're really trying to pull out of this stream of rich human thinking some tools that we can use in practical ways for psychic defense and nurturing of capability of self. Uh, but zero is definitely worth thinking about. But last time we talked about the equal sign and the concept of equivalence. And I've raised issues about false equivalencies before. But I think this is the idea that you uh, streamed us into with the confusion between identity and... I mean, think about identity for a moment. You identify with a group. You've got your totemic icon that says, I'm part of this club, right? So it's inclusion. Yep. It's 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 like um, well, it's membership. Mm-hmm. You know that word member again, uh, and yet we go from the isness of identity and the equal sign to the concept of sameness, but also amounts to the same worth and value. Mm-hmm. Those are enormously complicated ideas. You know, David, if you help me put uh, fix my roof, I'll help you uh, move the furniture. And mm. it's a trade for trade. Well, it, is it? You know? And this has been no, one of the great yeah. human complexities. And think how we have answered that problem. Think of the flattening of the barter system. I'm very fascinated by barter communities. And the ones that I know of, uh, and I'm not saying this is true overall, but unfortunately the ones I've been familiar with all end up in dissolution and and usually quite a bit of uh, anger and frustration because people simply can't find the basis of of, equal value. But before I throw it to you, I want to just put it in very, very tight terms that the equal sign, the concept of equality, equivalence, has a very peculiar double edge of 
being, as in this is that. This is that. This is the same as that, which has gotten even more complicated in our age of, of reproduction, you know? Constantly produced objects. Well, this screw is this screw. Well, yeah, it, it, it hopefully is exactly the same, but it's not exactly the same. We know that. Our hands tell us that. But then on top of it, we've got this, the meaning, the value. This is worth as much. This is as important. Every life matters. Everybody is the same. You know, we've got some real complicated ideas there. You know, really? Is everybody really interchangeable? And I think, so if we pull it, we've got a long-standing historic conflict about the nature of, of equality and equals, which math and philosophy have wrestled with really from ancient Greek times, you know, to now. And I think the Greeks only get mentioned because they, they were so good at, at highlighting their own confusion and sharing it with people. But then, in, in more recent modern times through industrialization, we've, we've even complexified more with uh, mass industrial reproductive capability. So, I'm going to feed that back to you now. Yeah, I want to pick up the thread of equality in terms of different people and different groups. This is a thought that I've been wrestling with for a little while. You mentioned that there is a there's a difference between equality as these two things are exactly the same and the idea of being similar to the idea of value, what something is worth to individuals as being two separate things. Now, this gets to a key point about equal about what's going on right now with the rhetoric about equality i think about the story of the good samaritan the, the classic bible story where a samaritan is walking along the road and finds a jew who's been beaten within in an inch of his life and has been robbed and has been passed over twice by holy men of his own tribe and the Samaritan, who's from a different tribe, breaks not just the rules, but the ethics of his particular tribe to help this beaten and battered Jewish man. And what's interesting about that story, and what I think it says about early Christianity, at least, who knows what it's become now, what it says about early Christianity is that Jesus was attempting to tell this story to a particular lawyer who had asked him, who is my neighbor? And the point of this story is that your neighbor is whoever you choose to engage in that relationship with. It's not about the rules of which tribe is which, but it's also not an all-encompassing rule that everybody's equal all the time. The trick is the time-bound particular choice that a person has to engage or to not engage and that brings me back to this idea of equality when when the idea that things are the same is exported 
to an institution, when equality becomes institutionalized, we divest ourselves of our responsibility to being able to engage with things that are fundamentally not equal. So we stop thinking. We stop thinking about the ways in which things are different, yet still worthy of engagement. And I think that there's a real insidiousness to to man not mandating but to pushing the meme the institutionalized meme of this equals this because at the end of the day we shouldn't be we shouldn't have hard and fast rules for things that are the same because very few things are the same and i think it's starting to take our humanity away i think we're going to some really strange and dark places in the name of equality which is what happens when you allow the middle managers to define these things mathematically that just aren't. Well, absolutely. Uh, I, I, I couldn't uh, uh, you know, agree with that last point uh, more fully. Uh, I, I noticed that expression hard and fast. Again, uh, I, I encourage listeners to never let any piece of language as common as it may seem slip by uh, without analysis. I encourage people to review what hard and fast comes from. Uh, sometimes we learn when we have to do a little bit more uh, research. But for instance, an expression by and large, I can tell you, is, uh, is a nautical term. And we let a lot of these phrases, and it's very important to note the difference between a phrase and an individual word. Quite remarkable to manage to become a phrase. Phrase is a very strange linguistic creature. Uh, always worth our thinking. But I, I think what David pointed out is something that is so fundamental uh, and again, you know, as I say to my students, there's, you know, there's nothing inherently obvious. And sometimes the more fundamental, uh, monolithic, and, and seemingly concrete something is, uh, the more bizarre it becomes. And you put your hand into it and it starts to ripple and sends out all these sort of amazing shimmers of strangeness that uh, you didn't anticipate before. It's the question of time. Time is something that we just simply cannot get our heads around. And we are constantly shifting uh, and applying different categorical frames. We have talked from the very beginning about the, the British philosopher Gilbert Ryle and his notion of category mistakes and how that category mistakes are the, really the essence of all human misunderstandings. We simply use the same word in very different contexts. We have very different frames for what appears to be the same thing, and we can't understand why the other person doesn't you know, get with us. Well, we have a very major global human cultural problem with time. And some of the most interesting anthropologists, we've talked on the show about Edward T. Hall, some of the most interesting thinkers have a lot to do with how different human groups 
define time. <laughs> David started early on talking about an Australian writer talking about the dream time idea. We've mentioned that a few times. But the notion that something is equal, the assumption that that, that is an enduring uh, relationship, that yes. is the problem. That yes, is the, the entire problem. Mm-hmm. And there is an absolute wonderful, I don't know if um, uh, there was, there are a couple of um, uh, holiday travel programs that were introduced kind of in the 1980s. Uh, and you, you, a couple, there were, there were couples driven, they'd you know, go off to some tropical island and there'd be no money. There'd be no money, but you'd have this uh, symbol system of, I don't know what it would be, beads or chips, or it's the casino idea of the chips, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, you spend more money when it's not money. You've, you've changed the symbolic reference. Well, there are a couple of very interesting studies what, when people are introduced to this kind of new symbol system of equality. Well, this, you know, this blue chip means 50 bucks, right? Well, if in the next hour you flip that around and you say, no, 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 I'm sorry, the blue chip is now worth $5, the yellow chips are worth 50 Well, the chaos that results is absolutely astonishing. I'll try to track down a reference of that. There, there was some uh, actual filmed version, and I think it was at the University of Illinois, for some reason, that sticks in my mind. But it was about changing, radical change of symbolic values over a short period of time. The, the dissonance it created, what people felt that the, the, the social uh, contract had been violated, their, their, their rules of engagement had changed, they were absolute, fur- you know, just furious. And there, it became like a food fight, a fist fight, uh, a real, you know, serious <laughs> explosion because they felt they'd been betrayed. You know, they'd agreed to a, a program of, of values and interchangeability. And, well, if that happens within a very rigid, ceremonial, symbolic, and officially defined frame, you can imagine how crazy things you know are out in the wild, where we really live. The wild mm-hmm. of domestic relationships. Is the labor, is the division of labor equal? Well, you ask females in heterosexual relationships, nope, never is. You ask the males, nope, never is. It, you know, mm-hmm. we can't get that idea of equality right because not just because we, we, we can't deal with the isness of being, that something is that other thing, that there is a sameness. Because we know that's just not true, even amongst two completely or seemingly identical industrial produced products. We know, you know, that nine inch bolt in my left hand is not the nine inch bolt in my right hand, even though mm-hmm. hopefully they're pretty hard to distinguish between. Mm-hmm. But the real problem is the time factor when we jump to other levels. And this is what is driving people crazy in interpreting so much of their lives today, so much of what's happening in the media or the world as it's reported through the media. 
It's the time factor. And we do know that timing is everything in life. We do understand that in very practical terms. But when we start looking at, at things that are fixed, things that we need to count on, whether they be agreements, contracts, relationships, understandings, or remote controls and microwave ovens and cars, uh, things begin to fall apart. But here's a metaphor, and it's a very concrete flesh and blood metaphor to break it back down. We never have any of these problems uh, with a young child. We have a whole bunch of other problems, but we don't have any fundamental conflict understanding that the child is different minute to minute. You know, we have a mm -hmm. we we don't accept that about adult people. You know, right? Yes. We don't accept that everyone is different when they walk in the door. We can't get we we insist on a consistency that well we're not that isn't really there. That, that we, we don't, don't hold to ourselves. Ex well, we certainly can't control it, and we, we wouldn't want to be held to. So no, it's we, just we, that we, we happen to be stuck. Yeah, we happen to be stuck inside these skulls. So we see the incremental changes, even if it's second to second. So we think we have an illusion of consistency about ourselves that is just not true at all. Twitter has put the lie to this. How many people have said one thing? And with the handy search function that exists on the website, being able to go back, not months, not weeks, not days, but hours, and finding a completely, you know, polar opposite, 180 degree difference in opinion uh, has really been illuminating. And of course, when people get called out like this, the response is, haha, you know, very funny. Yeah, you got me, whatever. But they're not really internalizing it. Um, I think that the time aspect of equality is a major key that that really in, in a practical sense can only lead one to the, the realization that every interaction that happens is, is emergent and is relational and is contained within the, the space in which it happens both temporally and spatially. And I think that if we could sit with that for a while, it, it it really might be a helpful well i mean that's what it's intended to be right it's a helpful tool to to start thinking with that right cuz you know you can let your neighbor you can give your neighbor a little bit of slack give yourself a little bit of slack but also see things a bit more clearly you know everything isn't just the same thing over and over again even hex bolts are different well, I think the one way to look at it, and we try to sort of look at it in very positive terms, and not in the sense of positive thinking, but just because of the problems of negation and any kind of deletion, which people like Bergson and Rupert Sheldrake and others sort of raise, are just kind of philosophically tangled. You know, if imagine the situation which many people find themselves in, at different times in life of, of dating, you know? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and you, you you think, look, I don't want to be starting over again each time I meet this person. We've got to be building some rapport. We've got to be building a, a framework like a mathematical proof, like, you know, Euclid's work from 
you know, axioms on up to theorems and proofs. You know, we've got to be building a, 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 some sort of, of invisible cathedral of understanding that we can, you know, go forward on. But yet at the same time, we can't take for granted the fact that the person is different every time and that we are different every time. So we're, we're having to oscillate, to, to use an expression and a, yep. and a technique we've talked about. We, we have to be alive to that and not resist that and not fight that. That, that the discovery of how we go forward is so important. So rather than be frustrated about you know, re, you know, having to build and, and go back and always having to prove ourselves, I've, I've had a couple of relationships where I've described it to myself as I felt like I was always auditioning for the part and, and didn't really get it, you know? It was mm -hmm. kind of, the, the audition never ended. And, mm -hmm. and I think that I understand my frustration and disappointment with those uh, specific relationships. But I think I could also reposition that idea now as being a kind of a good thing, you know, yeah. of staying on right. one's toes, of staying performative, of staying connected, of, of realizing that life is a dynamic process and it's not just a bunch of furniture or books or static things that we have to move. It, if they're going to be objects, they should be fetish objects and alive with meaning and significance and... Uh, I mean, one actual interesting uh, thing my psychologist friend said was, have around you things that you you that tell a story, even something as simple as a microwave or the remote control for your TV. You know, remember where you purchased it? Were you out with your girlfriend or boyfriend, or uh, was it an easy? You know, have some sense of the story and the dynamic process that you're engaged in, but. The time factor of, of if we look at a quality free of that, as free-floating, as a way of, uh, as an oscillation tool of bridging the gap between the uncertainty and newness of every moment. I mean, think about that. Every moment, it really is new. And thank mm -hmm. God. But the moment we, we even just try to appreciate that, anxiety and fear and all sorts of, of you know, darker things slip in. So we want to know what's coming up next. We want to be certain about this. And then we either get bored and, and disappointed when it happens, or we get you know, angry that it didn't happen quite the way we were imagining it. And then, you know, well, it's new, everything, right. you know. It's just very hard to accept some very simple truths. And I think to go, to go back to a, a really, really major theme of ours, I think this is, this is a, a very important way of, 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 of the indigenous tribal culture, traditional culture mind dealing with continuity and uh, and novelty. I mean, Terence McKenna, our, 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 one of our heroes, he has some very interesting ways of thinking about novelty. That's worth everybody going back to check on because he uses that in a very, very interesting way. Hmm. Excellent. 
I think that's a good place to stop on the tool for this time. There is a lot, a lot in there to digest, but I really want to pick a lot of that up next time. Would you like to hear my idea for a theme park? Uh, look, absolutely, absolutely. I, I think this is a beautiful challenge. It fits into the Wunderkammer sort of cabinet of curiosity, memory palace uh, notion. A theme park is a is a wonderful American idea, but it's a way of, of revealing values, uh, uh, the way of structuring mind, and the way of linking individual tastes and aesthetics with just absolutely, by definition, a social framework. So yes, we're going to be looking very closely to that interface between the private intimate ideas that you have presented to the world. So you're in line to get your ticket and you're waiting and you're looking around. It's very nondescript at first, but as you get closer and closer to the ticket counter, you can make out the distinct sound of a heart monitor beeping on the overhead speakers. And as you buy your ticket and walk down a path, that monitor beeping gets more and more intense, 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 until you enter into the park and you hear a flat line because you have entered Death World. Death World. <laughs> death World is a theme park that is all about death and the afterlife. Now, there will be many exhibits, museum style, about all the funky ways that people have died from spontaneous human combustion to hippopotamus attacks. There will be uh, instructional videos on death practices from nations all over the place. But this is a theme park, it's not a museum. So we have to have some fun stuff too. I was thinking that there could be live Senate competitions where people play the parts of the little chess pieces on the board. You could get little Dia de los Muertos Calavera cupcakes from stands nearby. You can go on the log flume that's made up to look like the river Styx. You can have a roller coaster that simulates the journey from death into the next life. The rebirth coaster can have different <laughs> valley we can have a valley of the kings replica we can have a golgotha replica and we can even have a blissed out planetarium style samsara chamber but the idea of death world is number one to have fun have a good time but to reconnect a little bit with this idea that we hide from so often which is death and with a little bit of brainstorming with 30 million dollars i could hire a crack team of Zoomers and Millennials to make it more more fun, more interactive, probably something to do with an app. But what I would want would be for people to walk away having spent a fun four or five hours in the park confronting their own mortality. Wow. Well, I think that is absolutely superb and I, I think it could really work I, I, there are many things that I like about that uh, but I, I genuinely believe it's um, it's distinctive enough without trying too hard to be 
overly original. You know, I think it's a, it's something that could really actually work, and it would certainly beautifully draw on all so many cultures of the world. You mentioned several. I mean, this is one of the great. Uh, it's probably along with birth, and love and the hero's journey, the you know the ultimate unifying human theme, and the the potential to to integrate cultural interpretations of the death experience and how that works. I think that would be absolutely fabulous, and it's it also has the potential to be. Uh, expandable as you, you maybe you know allow a certain uh, you know segment uh, of new you know underdevelopment for for very individual you know outsider artists and eccentrics to you know develop further the theme but I think that's really a lovely idea and I it uh, it may be the kind of thinking that we so desperately need at this time of where people are turning to the Hallmark Channel and really numbing out because of, of fear, anxiety, and stress, that if we actually did look death in the face, this is the, a great cultural idea from around the world, that often uh, death is smiling, you know? Um, mm-hmm. The Grateful Dead, the Happy Skeleton, you know, the Day of the Dead festivities, Carnival, you know? Carnival. I mean, I think that's a wonderful idea that rich in aesthetics and artistic possibilities, rich in psychological engagement, but also potentially just really, really fun. The one thing I would hope for is that it wouldn't become so uh, manically popular that it would be like the Disneyland haunted house where you could be waiting right. in line for 20 years and never get in. <laughs> and actually die before you get to the yeah, right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, we definitely don't want to do that. But no, I do, I do think that there is a lot of value in contemplating and thinking about death outside of the aesthetics. And this would be an aesthetically pleasing park. Of course, you don't want it to be boring or... You, you even even though we're talking about death, you really don't want it to be overly morbid either, right? I mean, you kind of want it to be fun, but you just want to get people's gears turning a little bit because what you said is absolutely true. If we start to think about the the end, possibly the biggest event of our lives besides our birth, puts things into perspective, I think overall. But do you do you have a tip for today? Yeah, I do, and it builds on the last, uh, and, and I, I'm going to shift gears after this one, but in last episode, I, I talked about uh, the the very common problem of when when someone raises an issue uh, or, or mentions something going on in their lives, we, we so often almost, well, not almost, but sometimes very literally, at the knee-jerk level, respond with uh, an example from our lives which we, we're trained to think is good conversation. Sometimes we, we do it for the best intentions. We think we're being empathetic. But as I mentioned last time, we often really just overwhelm the other person's experience. We invalidate them. We, we, we can sometimes not hear what they're really raising as the question or as the issue they're talking about. Um, we're not giving them the attention they need we're maybe afraid we don't have something to say. We need to chime in, put our oar in, our two cents, all those 
cliched expressions. Uh, and sometimes we just need to back off and, and listen and be more suppressive of our experience. And David um, gave a really good practical example of a friend comes and says, he talks about uh, a grandmother just dying. And David thinks, well, look, my grandmother's dead. But rather than just throw that in, talk to this friend as if that personal experience had not happened. It can be brought out at some point. It just doesn't have to be brought out instantly. And I think that was really a good practical tip. But it's part of a larger thing of, of listening skills, misplaced empathy. Dave and I are going to continue to prosecute that idea. I think that's very, very uh, misrepresented in society. But this, this week's tip is, is, is flipping it around. When someone does come to you for advice or asks a question, what then? Well, I have had, and I'm sure everyone listening has had this experience, of someone going, well, it's your call. Mm-hmm. You know, and you think, mm-hmm. yeah, I know that. Right. I know that. <laughs> I, I, you mean when you ask for advice, you ask somebody for advice and they say it's your call? Yeah. It's like, yeah, I, that's I my don't problem. Need, <laughs> I don't need to be told that. Right. Uh, so the question is then, what do we do when a question is asked of us or our opinion is sought or perhaps our expertise and, and past experience. Well, per, the first part of this tip is to be able to listen well enough to be able to distinguish those levels. Are we being asked to reinforce a position? Sometimes people ask a question and the deal has already been done. And our, only our intuition can tell us that. You know, do you think I should have embezzled that money from the bank? <laughs> oh, okay. You know? I mean, intuition yeah. is the, the alarm bells are ringing. Uh, are we being asked to share an experience? Just flatly, just, I want to, I just need a little, you know, I need a little share time here. Or mm-hmm. are we being asked something more, more pragmatic? Do, have we been through something like this? And is our advice of special importance? Is this a special field? Is it maybe not quite a professional deal, but it, it, it's something where we're being asked something that somebody else, another friend, wouldn't be asked, for instance. Okay? Mm-hmm. Listening for that. The most important thing in this situation is to be like a dog. Be decisive. Think about the body position. Are you secure under your feet? Are you slouching? Are you actually paying attention? And then come to the party, as the saying goes. Have some kind of response that is more meaningful than, it's your call, (laughs) or I guess you could go left or you could go right. You know, remember the Scarecrow and the Wizard of Oz, Mm -hmm. you know? It's like, no, have some kind of answer. 
maybe you don't have to have an immediate answer. Maybe what really is needed is to be involved in a little bit of decision-making process with a friend or colleague, a lover, you know? Maybe, maybe the last thing that's needed is a quick answer. But you don't want to just simply handball it off. That is poor form. You know you're going to get the worst. Yeah, you know you're going to get the worst advice ever when it begins with, well, at the end of the day, you know it's going to be bad advice. (laughs) Anytime you hear a a pat expression coming out, like the end of the day is the perfect, you know, one. You're not getting enough engagement, you know. It's not enough. I mean, think of the way that dogs look at us. Dogs are really not stupid when it comes to humans. They know, look, maybe this guy isn't the best, you know, smartest human in the group. You know, <laughs> I, I could maybe be doing better. But look, he's my guy. And if he says we're going out now, I'm, I want to be in the car, you know. And it's about decisiveness. It's about the way we... And and I think it's worth going back to uh, one of our heroes, Gregory Bateson, anthropologist, psychologist, theorist about schizophrenia and alcoholism. He had a lot to say also about paralinguistic behavior before that became pop psych talked about in terms of body language. And there is some truth about uh, the body language phenomenon, but if, if people are interested in that, I would consult uh, some of, of the work by expert salespeople, con men, uh, gamblers, and intelligence operatives, not the, uh, the, the, the trade paperback uh, body language stuff that got... I mean, it did create some interest. There's no question, and there are some things that are right about it. But think of it more basically as about being uh, fixed in your body and, uh, and really secure in that and using your whole body in, in your communications back. But if somebody asks you a question, think of it as both an opportunity and a challenge. And if you're the kind of person who doesn't like opportunities, you need to reevaluate. And if you're the kind of person who doesn't like challenge, it's too late for you. Perfect. Take us out with a dream. This has been a great episode. I'm excited for this dream to cap it all off. Okay, well, this is an example of how... Uh, our so-called waking life does kind of not permeate because permeate sounds permanent but it infiltrates penetrates infuses itself into dreams uh, there's one point where the walls of my house are covered with uh, really thin plastic and everything is kind of uh, you know, sort of breathing with the wind, and it's all suppressed. The colors aren't fully revealed. There's 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 paint dust. There's all sorts of. It's it's there's something both happening underneath, but also being obscured. And I found myself walking through an entire neighborhood where externally, like this, you know, th- th- this is was the effect. 
and it was very bizarre. It had sort of a little bit of a resonance of uh, a, a, a kid uh, in our neighborhood where uh, their, their house got the fumigation tent over it, mm. and, mm-hmm. and they never recovered from that. You know, they never recovered from 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 that stigma. And in fact, you know, there was there should have been no stigma. They were doing the right thing. They were being good neighbors. So I'm wandering through this very suppressed, weird neighborhood that I can't really tell the colors of the houses because of this. Uh, it's not even just plastic. It's some sort of atmospheric screening all around. But out of this experience, I come to another aspect of, of my, uh, that I've been exposed to lately. These ridiculous uh, shows that are obstacle courses of swimming pools and trampolines and, uh, you know, these uh, various circus things, you know, that are in places like Australia and Las Vegas, which is a big home of these courses. And they're, they're very strange to watch. I mean, the people who, who are doing it are really tremendously athletic. But there's also a kind of a, a, a silliness to the design, the bright colors, the strangeness, kind of a Japanese perversity about the whole thing. As if people are really kind of shaming themselves, even while they're performing great athletic stunts. But out of this whole crazy thing, there's a guy who goes off a diving board trampoline in this gorilla suit, a full-blown gorilla suit. And he arches out over this amazingly crafted, deep aqua set of, of swimming pools, like a really complicated maze of aquatic contraption and disaster. And as he's in midair, this enormous sort of really cool gorilla suit, guy in a gorilla suit, the head comes off and plummets down into the water right at my feet. And to my amazement, in the time between the gorilla, the man in the gorilla suit, trampolining off this high dive over this really dangerous jigsaw of waterways. The head, which should have been uh, the mask of the gorilla suit, had turned into a real human head, his head, and his body crashed in this beautiful splash of fountain minus the head that was floating in the pool by my feet. <laughs>